Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. On September 29th, Las Vegas police officers arrested Dwayne Keefe D. Davis, who was charged with orchestrating the murder of famed rapper Tupac Shakur more than 27 years ago. Davis's arrest comes after more than a decade of speculation about his role in the killing, fueled in no small part by Davis's own quasi-confessions. Joining me to discuss the saga of Tupac's death and this arrest is former Los Angeles Police Department detective Greg Kading, who led the task force that secured Davis's initial 2009 admission to being involved in the murder. Detective Kading, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. So I know since this arrest, as you were saying before we hit record, your phone's been ringing a lot because of your involvement. But let's go back and start kind of at the beginning. I hate to say this, but there might be some people listening who are not so familiar with Tupac. Could you could you explain who he was and how big a deal and influence he was in the rap world? Sure. Tupac is a rap icon. He's the rapper that everybody aspires to be. He was um, a poet. He was a rapper. He was uh, an actor. He was a figurehead in the Black community as somebody who could potentially lead movements. He was huge. And all this before being 25 years old. Yeah, he died at 25. I know, look, I, I, I listened to a lot of Tupac in the early 90s myself. So he, he was killed, and we'll get to that in a moment, in 1996 in Las Vegas on the Strip. Could you explain what is known about who he was feuding with and who his antagonists were before he was killed? Sure. It kind of set the stage a little bit. You know, he was making a name for himself or he had a name for himself, but he was really kind of a rising star in New York. He ran into some problems out there. He felt that the people back there didn't um, have his back and that they were betraying him. Uh, He got himself into some trouble with a young lady, um, went to prison over that on some accusations of sexual assault. And then at that time, there was a record company out in Los Angeles called Death Row Records being headed by a guy named Suge Knight. And they knew of Tupac's potential as a music artist. And so Suge Knight 
approached Tupac in prison in Rikers Island in New York and said, if we can get you out on bond, would you then come to our record label and produce three albums? So the um, agreement was made and they put up a million dollar bond in order to get Tupac out of jail prior to his trial. And he came out to the West Coast and then he just started to produce massive amounts of, of music, many of them becoming huge hits. And so that's how he attached himself and got in bed, so to speak, with Suge Knight and Death Row Records. Their adversary was an East Coast record company called Bad Boy. Bad Boy was a hip-hop label being headed by a guy named Puffy Combs, uh, commonly known as P. Diddy. And uh, there was this growing beef between the CEOs, Suge and Puffy, and a beef growing between the artists, Tupac and Biggie, and a beef you know, growing between just the labels themselves. So that's how it all started. So now let's, let's fast forward to Tupac's death. Could you explain what is known about what happened? Sure. And it was all this conflict that was going on for almost two years between these labels. And ultimately, Tupac was in Las Vegas with Suge Knight and other members of Death Row, including Suge Knight's criminal associates, gang members from a blood gang from Compton, California. Well, meanwhile, there was some Crips that were in Las Vegas at the same time, and those Crips had associated themselves with Bad Boy Records, the, the rival of Suge Knight and Tupac. And so there was an incident where a fight occurred in the lobby of a, of a casino. Tupac had sucker punched a young gang mem member by the name of Orlando Anderson, and that set everything in motion for the retaliation wherein Tupac was shot and killed by that same individual that he had sucker punched and that the gang had, had stomped down. So describe a little bit what the scene was like as Tupac was in his BMW with various people, including Suge Knight, and a white Cadillac pulls up alongside. Just briefly tell that story. So prior to the shooting, it was celebration. Tupac had just come from the Mike Tyson fight. He personally knew Mike Tyson. In fact, the song that Mike Tyson entered the ring to was a song that Tupac had written. So there was this huge sense of celebration. Mike Tyson had knocked out his opponent in like less than a minute. Everybody was headed over to a nightclub that Suge was establishing in Las Vegas. Mike Tyson was supposed to appear. Tupac was going to perform. It was going to be this really grand night. And as they were on their way to that location, there was a caravan of cars. They were yelling and the music was blaring. Girls were falling in, in you know, into this um, caravan and Lo and behold, this white Cadillac with these Crip gang members just creeps on up. They identify the car that Tupac and Sugar sitting in, and Orlando Anderson reaches out the window and begins to fire his, his handgun into the car, striking Tupac several times, which caused his death. He died about a week later in the hospital, right? Correct. So that's a big, huge event, a homicide. You've worked a lot of homicides what was the immediate investigation like and how did you become involved at some point? The immediate investigation was chaos. There was two crime scenes. There was the location where the shooting took place at an intersection. 
And so, you know, there's cars going and everyone's trying to figure out what just happened. Bystanders, parked vehicles have been struck by bullets. So you had that scene itself. But then as the shooting was taking place, Suge Knight immediately drove away, trying to get out of the line of fire. So he jumps a median and goes about a mile down the road before he pulls over. Well, the law enforcement is aware of a shooting because it's coming out on the radio, but they don't know if Suge Knight and his crew are the shooters. They don't know if they've you know, exchanged gunfire with somebody. They don't know if they're victims. So it's very chaotic. And because of the nature of the people that Suge Knight is associating himself with and with that Tupac's associating himself with, nobody's cooperating with law enforcement. Uh, you know, nobody saw anything. All they know is Tupac's been shot. And so law enforcement isn't getting the kind of information they really need to start to identify the suspects. So I'm going to jump ahead to something that I know you've said about Suge Knight, who, as you've described, was present in Tupac's car and, and drove it a mile away. You said, quote, recently, quote, if there's anybody in the world to blame for this taking 27 years to solve, it's Suge Knight. He knew the moment it happened who did it. And all Suge had to do when Las Vegas PD asked him to come in and sit down for an interview, all he had to do was say, they pulled up alongside, I looked right across the car, I saw Keefe D in the front seat, that's Davis. That's all he had to say. I saw Keefe D. That alone, that witness statement, would have changed everything, end quote. Because, you know, one of the reasons we're talking and the people are calling you up is to ask the question, why did it take 27 years to solve this very notorious murder or to make any arrest in this case? Can you elaborate on, on what you meant when you said that about Shook Knight? What, what would his motivation have been not to talk? Well, he comes from a street culture and that street culture of Compton and that, that gang subculture doesn't cooperate with law enforcement. They consider it snitching. And even when they've lost a loved one, they still don't want to be the one who cooperates with law enforcement in order to get justice in that case. They would rather take matters into their own hands and handle things on the street. And so that's exactly what happened in this case. Suge Knight knew Keefe D. He knew Dwayne Davis. He saw him and knew immediately um, who it was in that car. So if he had just simply told Las Vegas investigators, hey, it was the Southside Crips, it was Dwayne Keefe Davis, that would have given them the evidence they needed, the eyewitness evidence they needed to round everybody up and solve the case. They always knew Orlando Anderson was the primary suspect. He had the motive. He was the guy that was just beaten down by Tupac. He was an established bona fide gang member. They knew that he was the most likely culprit, but they couldn't prove it. And so that's why it languished for years and years and years until Keefe D finally confessed. I'm going to get to that confession in a moment, but was there ever any thought among the cops? I know it's an uphill battle and it's a long shot given what you've described, but thinking about charging someone like Suge Knight with obstruction? Um, I don't know that uh, they ever thought about doing that because of course they're going to have to prove. Yeah that he knew this and he would then just deny it. Oh, I didn't see anything. So these are the games that Suge plays and the difficulties that law enforcement has when dealing with that type of mentality. And so how did you become involved? I became involved indirectly. So after Tupac was shot, six months later, another rapper by the name of Biggie Smalls 
His true name was Christopher Wallace, but he was known as either Biggie Smalls or the notorious B.I.G. He was a very, very prominent rapper that worked for that rival group over at Bat Bad Boy Records in New York. And he gets killed at the Peterson Auto Museum on March 9th um, of 1997, just six months after Tupac was murdered. He gets killed. Well, that case languishes for years and years and years until a cold case investigation um, begins to reinvigorate it. And that's when I got involved as a cold case investigator on Biggie's murder. But investigators always knew that the likelihood of the two murders having some connection were very strong. Um, the way the murders went down was very similar, kind of drive-by shootings, gang members. So that's how I got involved. And Keefe D, the individual who ultimately confesses in Tupac's murder, was also with Biggie the night that he was killed. He had been at the Peterson Auto Museum and fraternizing with Biggie. So he was a person of interest in that case also. So let's go back to Keefe D., and this confession you keep talking about, I, I presume you're talking about statements he made to law enforcement many years after 1996 in 2009 under what uh, we in law enforcement you know, are familiar with, a proffer agreement. Can you explain what that is and why that confession didn't immediately lead to the arrest and prosecution of Keefe D? Sure. Keefe D you know, had been interviewed about Biggie's murder in the past and about Tupac's murder in the past. And he just said, no, I don't know. I can't tell you what happened. It wasn't us. And so we knew that in order to get him to fully disclose information that he knew, we would have to get leverage on him. So we developed a airtight drug case against him, which was going to have him facing 25 years to life. So now we had this leverage in order to compel him to cooperate. So he gets an attorney and an agreement is made between Keefe D, his attorney, and the United States attorney who is overseeing this drug investigation. And they do what's known as a proffer agreement. And that is where you can sit down and ask somebody who you believe is involved in criminal activity to answer your questions about whatever crimes you want to question them about. And they're obligated to tell you the truth, but they have the protection of knowing that what they tell you about themselves won't be used against them. You'll use their information to conduct you know, further investigation. If other people bring in information that implicates them, that can be used. It's not immunity, and that's where people often get this confused. Right. But you can't use against the person the statements that they're making about themselves directly. But if you get other evidence, you can absolutely charge somebody, even with respect to the things that they're confessing, right? That is correct. And also if they violate the terms of that agreement, if they lie or, you know, like in this case, they go outside of the proffer agreement, outside of that law enforcement environment and begin to publicly boast about their role in, in the shooting, none of that is protected either. But what ordinarily happens is when you have a successful proffer, the target admits that they committed some crimes, they become prepared to testify against other people, and then in exchange for potential leniency, they will plead guilty to the things that they confessed about and then testify against other bigger fish that they have information on. None of that happened here. You're right, that is the typical course of action, and you're right that that's not what happened here. Why not? 
Well, because A, we wanted to then use Keefe D as an informant. So we wanted to further elaborate on the things that he said, find other evidence against other people. But we began to utilize him um, as an informant and went to... uh, to New York to try to secure some incriminating statements against other co-conspirators. And as that was going on, the simultaneous investigation with Biggie Smalls came to a halt because we had gotten into a, we'd gotten a confession in that case also at about the near, near about the same time. And when we got that confession in this turns into a much broader conversation against about a civil case that was being lodged against the city of Los Angeles. That civil case was retracted based on the evidence that we developed in the Biggie case. And once that was done, the task force was dismantled. So we contacted Las Vegas and said, hey, we've got this guy who's confessed to being involved in your murder. And uh, here he is. So they came out, we explained to them that there was a proffer agreement, and then we left everything in their hands. So now fast forward to 2023. 14 years earlier was this uh, confession made under the protection of a proffer agreement, as you've described. What is different between 2009 and 2014 that enables the Las Vegas police to arrest Keefe D? Well, nothing happens really with Keefe D between 2009 and 2018. So nearly nine years go by, and then he decides that he's going to go on a documentary um, called The Death Row Chronicles. It was a BET production, and he goes on to a documentary and begins to publicly confess about his role in the murder. After that, he writes a book called Street Legend uh, about himself and about his exploits and confesses in the book to his role in the murder. And then after that, he begins to go on a series of podcasts and begins to incriminate himself on those platforms. And so he's continually publicly boasting now about being involved in the murder. Right. And that's what lands him in hot water. Can I ask you on a scale of one to 10, and I know the answer, how dumb was that? Oh, uh, I don't know if we can use this word anymore, but like he's, he's so ignorant, like he's so ignorant. But that's the interesting thing about Keefe D is that he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Is there any other precipitating factor other than over the course of years, in the last period of time, he began openly confessing? And obviously those open confessions are not subject to any proffer agreement. Correct. And so for five years now, he's been speaking publicly about- So I guess why did it take five years? So after he confesses publicly a couple of times, do you have any, do you have any visibility into the thinking- the Las Vegas authorities as to why now? I, th- I think you've mentioned that one key was a particular investigator. I think there are three components to it, and this is speculation. Most certainly it was a very dogged investigator, a guy named Cliff Mogg, who decided that he's going to solve this case before he retires, which he did. So there was the, you know, just the diligence of that investigator. But also um, there was just horrible optics for Las Vegas PD, when you have somebody out publicly confessing and the perception is that Las Vegas doesn't care, evidently, because nobody's doing anything and this guy's bragging about it. So that, I'm sure, put a little bit of a pressure on them um, because of the perception. And then lastly, I think that what they were probably thinking is, 
why not just let him keep talking? You know, having him say it once, yeah, that's bad. Having him say it twice is worse. Having it say it five times, that's really. So they're, they're allowing him to compound his situation and compound the amount of evidence against him. So I think it was a smart move maybe to delay things for a while and just let him keep talking. Because as you know, it's very typical in law enforcement. When somebody starts talking, just let him keep let talking. Let him talk. <laughs> that's, that's definitely true. But why can't he say credibly, look, I'm kind of a punk. I was just bragging. It's just puffery. The truth is I really didn't know. I wasn't there. And isn't it, doesn't it become like a he said, he said within the same person kind of issue? If that brings up a really interesting situation, a legal situation that will probably get argued out in court. Yeah. So if he does that, if he says, hey, I was just talking, you know, nonsense. I didn't mean any of it. Well, that means he violated the proffer agreement. Right, because he lied. Because he lied. And so he's in a quagmire um, yeah. where- It's not clear how that would play out in court because it's kind of, it's a um, conundrum a bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a bit. So he, he confesses to a murder and a proffer, that's protected. Then he later says he was lying when he confessed publicly. So that, as you say, undoes the protection of the proffer agreement. But then what are you left with? You're left with a statement that he will continue to claim was a lie. So what you're going to end up doing, and which I think they'll do rather easily, is shore everything up with some really strong circumstantial evidence. They're going to shore it up with um, testimony from other gang members. They're going to shore it up with testimony from people who saw Keefe D at the 662 Club lying in wait. So there's a lot of circumstantial information that they can use to show that he was telling the truth. In the proffer session, he tells us things that own, that were never made or known publicly, and only somebody that was there would know. And so that corroborates right. his presence. So the statements in the proffer have indicia of truth. Correct. Do we have an understanding, a good understanding of who the shooter was? We do. And it's being debated recently only because there was a grand jury witness who said that he had spoken to one of the other occupants in the car, a guy named DeAndre Smith. And according to this grand jury witness, DeAndre Smith confessed that he had been the shooter. As opposed uh, to Orlando Anderson. As opposed to Orlando Anderson. I lean heavily back towards Orlando because that's what Keefe D said. He was in the car. He is an eyewitness. And I believe that the things that he were telling us during our interview were accurate and true. And so when he says he handed the gun to Orlando Anderson and Orlando Anderson did the shooting, I believe it. The hearsay information doesn't weigh as heavily in my mind. And also you have to keep in mind the gang culture. Orlando Anderson was the one that was stomped down. He was the one that was assaulted. It was his retaliation to get even for. And within the gang culture, it's his job to carry out that retaliation. Do you think that you might become a witness at the trial? Well, most certainly if they allow the proffer. If some event happens where they determine that the proffer can be made admissible, then yes, myself and other members of our task force will probably get called in. Um, has anyone told you 
detective Kading um, stop doing podcasts? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <All right. laughs> sometimes, sometimes people don't like potential witnesses to be out talking about what might be a part of their future testimony, but, but I'm, oh, well, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you're able to do this. I, there are hundreds of hours of internet conversations already before Keefe D was ever arrested. So it's not like I can hide from that. And you think, um, final question, you think that the Las Vegas authorities have a strong case and they will get a conviction even though it's been 27 years? I am optimistic. I am very, very optimistic. I think that they dotted their I's and crossed their T's and they really want to have, in fact, I don't even think it'll go to trial. I think once the judge agrees to allow his public statements in, the evidence is so overwhelming that it would be in his best interest to take a deal. So I think he would, he would probably plead out. Detective Greg Kading, this has been a, a, re a real pleasure and honor to speak to you. I, I will just say one, one final point, and it may be, uh, given your background and my background, that um, this felt at times like a direct examination, a very excellent witness testifying under direct, where my questions are basically what happened next. I remember, I remember um, and I don't know if people have said this to you, when I first became a prosecutor and was asking questions about how to conduct a direct examination <laughs> Someone said, it's very easy. You just say, what happened? And then after the answer, you say, what happened next? <laughs> and then? And, and then? then? <laughs> then? <laughs> it's not quite as easy as that, but that's the basic premise. In any event, um, thank you for your work on this, and I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned in Brief is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Matthew Billy. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. The editorial producers are David Kurlander, Noah Azulay, and Jay Kaplan. The production coordinator is Claudia Hernandez. And the email marketing manager is Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.